0: WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
1: From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Friday, January 6th. 30 seconds of the voice of Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn.
0: After getting relieved by other officers in the crypt, I took off running upstairs towards the Speaker's lobby and helped a plainclothes officer who was getting hassled by insurrectionists. Some of them were dressed like members of a militia group, wearing tactical vests, cargo pants, and body armor. I was physically exhausted, and it was hard to breathe and to see because of all the chemical spray in the air.
1: Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn from his live January 6th committee testimony. I'm very happy to have with us now Ari Melber, MSNBC Chief Legal Correspondent, and host of a show, The Beat, in the 6 p.m. hour, Eastern Time, Mondays through Fridays. And now Ari has written the foreword to a published edition of the January 6th Committee Report. It's the edition published by HarperCollins. Uh, And uh, Ari, I I see how much they use you on the network, even outside the show in recent times. So thanks for making some time for us today. Always good to have you. Welcome back to WNYC.
0: Thanks. Uh, as a New Yorker, great to be with you, Brian, and uh, with your listeners.
1: I read your forward and I'd say you have a thesis, and it's that we should think of January 6th, not as a single date in time, but as part of what you call a continuous coup conspiracy. Want to discuss that term, continuous coup conspiracy?
0: Sure. Uh, my thesis Uh, MAY SOUND TO SOME PEOPLE WHO FOLLOW THE NEWS AS FAIRLY STRAIGHTFORWARD. OF COURSE, IT TOOK PLANNING TO EXECUTE SOMETHING THAT WAS THAT HORRIFIC AND IN A VERY REAL AND CRIMINAL SENSE, EFFECTIVE. Uh, AND YET, LIKE ANY THESIS OR ANY ARGUMENT, WE HAVE TO DEAL WITH THE WORLD AS IT IS. Uh, I WOULD REMIND EVERYONE, HERE WE ARE ON JANUARY 6TH AND WE MARK THIS DAY AND WE'LL CONTINUE TO DO SO AS A NATION. THOSE OF US WHO FACE FACTS AND THE REALITY OF THAT DAY, Um, Two years ago, at the end of that day, uh, it was not widely viewed as something that had been planned and was part of a wider set of planks, as I argue, of basically eight different plots conspiring to overthrow the election. And even in the second impeachment of Donald Trump, it was largely presented as a single-day attack where Donald Trump gave a speech in the morning that incited the attack in the afternoon. That's why I think listeners will remember all the talk about incitement and what is a speech and what is a call to arms and those legalistic distinctions. Uh, That was far too narrow a framework and even Trump's critics and people trying to impeach, uh, try and convict him in the Senate were using that narrow of a framework. And so if partly thanks to this committee's investigation, we've seen uh, the sheer breadth of these plots, some which were hatched before the election even occurred um, and the overwhelming evidence, as I, as I document in this piece, uh, that, that many of them um, were criminal.
1: And I do actually want to spend most of our time going through some of the eight distinct plans that you identify in this forward to the report to overturn the loss. So I don't think we'll get to all eight you know the old joke about um, the broadcast version of the Ten Commandments, if they had broadcasting back then? God gave Moses the Ten Commandments today. Two of the most interesting ones were. Um, <laughs> right. so, so we'll go through what, what we can, but I want you to set it up with a, with a very interesting, to me anyway, distinction that you make um, in setting up this forward, which is that things that are unconstitutional and things that are illegal— are not always the same thing. And that distinction matters for understanding the big lie in January 6th big picture. So why do you draw attention to that distinction between the illegal and the unconstitutional?
0: It's an important distinction because the government is a special category of action. And as we all kind of know, however much we think about it, the government has these extra powers. Uh, So police can pretty quickly automatically do things that a human can't do, a civilian can't do. Um, that doesn't mean that when they exceed those powers, they are automatically criminal, and there's good reason for that, because it, it wouldn't really work well if you had to keep indicting and convicting people just because they were um, perhaps wrongly exceeding their, their lawful authority, although there is a level, as we all know, where it can reach crimes. So I give the example in the in the forward to the January 6th report, the HarperCollins edition, as you mentioned, that When the government does something that's obviously unconstitutional, like it says, oh, we're going to ban people entering the country based on religion, uh, a familiar example, perhaps. Um, Very quickly, we have a system where the courts can rule that unconstitutional, and they stop that. So at a very real level, very quickly, it is halted. And I'm sure people remember coverage of that. Um, What that means is that the law of the land exercised through the courts has the final word and overruled the attempted law or the action pursued by the politician. But nobody goes to jail. Uh, it just means you cannot enforce that anymore and it ends. Whereas a crime, what we think of you know, traditionally, whether it is uh, committed by someone who happens to also have government power or a random civilian, is a much higher bar of they set out to intentionally break the law and they personally acted to do so and they are, convicted, they are tried, convicted, go to jail. Those are two lanes that, you know, outside of law school or theory, people aren't always distinguishing that much. And I make that point because, for example, what they were asking Mike Pence to do was very certainly unconstitutional. Um, the, the vice president, in his role overseeing the Senate, cannot steal or overrule elections, uh, as we say in, in court. Duh. Um, but I don't see any serious uh, legal scholar who suggested that doing that would be a crime. That is to right. say Pence would be whisked off to jail that day. But if he did that, we have, we do have, we're supposed to have mechanisms to say that's unconstitutional, it's not what the Constitution says, you can't steal that election, that, therefore that act isn't valid, it's not a lawful valid act any more than if he stood up someday on, and said, hey, uh, we won. And uh, that doesn't have legal force. And so, as we saw, because they said a lot of lies that did not ultimately carry the day. So, I think it's very important to understand when I count the eight plots, um, I see basically uh one that was legal throughout which is filing lawsuits and how they used it and they really pushed it but that's basically legal even if the lawsuit is complete crap so uh, let, another, let me sorry, go, go ahead. ahead i'm sorry go ahead finish that well thoughts. i'll try to round it out in two sentences. another that that started out lawful the electors plot but turned criminal uh, and that's then the just other, what i was
1: going to ask you about yeah but yeah, go and
0: ahead and then the other six uh being unconstitutional or criminal throughout
1: So the fake electors plot is fascinating to me, being on that line uh, between an attempted legal parliamentary maneuver and something that's criminal. And I'll say that your show has taught me a lot about that because I first thought, well, if they want Trump electors standing by in case the legal process allows them to be seated— that's not a crime. So why do they call get called fake electors now? And where does it become something worse potentially than political maneuvering?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, Brian. And, and we do want a wide berth for political advocacy, zealous advocacy, and plenty of you know, tough rough, tough politics. I mean, that that's not supposed to be quote-unquote criminalized. I think listeners remember sometimes in certain scandals where people talk about the, quote, criminalization of politics. And if by that we mean taking the normal pursuit with aggressive full-force energy of, of office and making it a crime, no, we don't want that. The electric plot's a funny one, but the the way I would put it is, you know when it became illegal on the calendar because from December 14th on, the actual electors were lawfully and finally submitted to the electoral college process, which however weird it is, is in the constitution. So before that day, you can say, well, we have this alternate option, maybe in case something changes or in case we win a lawsuit or here's why, fine. Right. After that day, you have elector fraud. And as we pointed out in, in my coverage on MSNBC and, and I, in other places, there are people in the United States in prison today serving multi-year terms for a single isolated paperwork violation where they were found to have committed voter fraud. They weren't eligible or they had had been taken off the rolls and they went forward anyway. And they're in prison, Brian. Um, Many of them are poor and minorities. Some of them are poor and white. None of them, um, just about none of them, are are wealthy with good lawyers, of course, which goes to other problems in the system. But real people in real prisons for that isolated minor one-off. This wasn't no one-off. This was a multi-state coordinated plot at the highest levels of government with the president's lawyers involved to commit elector fraud. And it went all the way through to January 6th, which, if people remember, there were officials still trying to submit fraudulent slates of electors that day on the floor to Pence to give him the pretext to create chaos. My observation, again, my job is to say what the facts show, not to pick you know, partisan sides. My observation legally is uh, that's overwhelming evidence of a crime, and that crime has not been charged.
1: Let me go to what might have been to my eye the most disturbing from your list of eight ways that they tried to overturn the election or consider doing so. And it's what you call in, in the book the Pentagon <clears throat> the Pentagon and Orange jumpsuits scenario. And now I guess we're moving toward an actual war footing part of this is the military seizing voting machines which they did not ultimately try to do but what about the pentagon and orange jumpsuits why is that a section of your forward to the january 6 committee report
0: so this is something that, that the committee unearthed in more detail than we ever knew and it's vital for legal reasons that go beyond the story uh, basically Donald Trump was getting increasingly desperate because some of the plots were not working. And so this is one of those eight plots, although it was ultimately discarded, um, where the more radical people on team coup, so you have t- you know the team lawful that doesn't want to go along with the coup, and you have the civil service pushing back. Then you have team coup. But even on team coup, people like Rudy Giuliani said, "Well, we can't involve the military, we'll end up in orange jumpsuits. So one night here uh, in December, What you have is basically the more radical members of team coup who were banned from the White House, even by Mark Meadows, are snuck in by an aide to Peter Navarro for this late night session to give one more pitch of their plot where they wanted the military to seize voting machines. That is that is an unlawful order that is illegal, that is out of bounds and try to get one of their coup members, Sidney Powell, into a government position. Now, this is something the founders worried about. That Yes, you have this independent election, but then you have all this power. And what if you just bring all your election people in to override the power, right? That's why election officials, judges um, don't report in to the president in any way. So anyway, uh, they get snuck in by an aide to Peter Navarro. They have this crazy, ridiculous bananas meeting. Ultimately, they discard this plot because Trump is convinced by some of his people like Giuliani, that this would blow up in their face, that they would end up in jumpsuits, et cetera. That same night, around two in the morning is the first time that Trump publicly summons people to Washington on January 6th. That is damning criminal evidence against Trump because it shows that anytime he was set back in one of these eight plots, his lawyers can't claim, oh yeah, he, he followed the law, he was keeping the line, he didn't want it to turn violent. Quite the opposite he then would double back, retrench, and find a different way to pursue the same goal. And the military goal, which he discarded, and the goal on the 6th, which he uh, pursued, were the same. Sabotage the lawful election to illegally try to overrule it and stay in office illegally. And again, these are things that the, the difficult question of whether you charge a former president, I think, remains. But these are things where the American Island Justice Department has not charged any of the other individuals, Mm -hmm. citizens who were in that meeting or government officials, uh, for any of those roles. They have stuck to only the people who physically stormed the Capitol, the the muscle.
1: You just told me something I didn't know in that story, if I heard you right. Did you actually point to a moment where Rudy Giuliani was a voice of restraint in all this?
0: (laughs) Yes, basically.
1: (laughs) Um, Did... I mean, the Pentagon was one of the institutions that held, right? There was a warning. There were things that members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said about how they were afraid that Trump would try to use the military. And yet when we talk about the Oath Keepers, they are explicitly uh, a militia made up of former members of the military and former members of police forces. So I, I wonder if the committee... Um, addresses in the report at all, if they took any testimony on how much of a rebel faction there could potentially have been in the U.S. Armed Forces?
0: You know, the report doesn't go deeply into that type of concern, but it definitely has a whole security section looking at both the general failures. How did how did you not protect these actual physical spots better, uh, as well as raising questions about how these militia groups did seem to be so effective. For example, members of some of these militia groups having contacts with high-level Republican elites like Roger Stone, who was still in contact with Trump in the days leading up to the 6th, which leaves a lot of open questions, uh, as well as any contacts they had with the law enforcement agencies. But I didn't read that section as you could write a whole year-long study alone of the larger yeah. questions about about in, infiltration. I don't think they got deep into that.
1: Uh, but another plot from your list of eight is what you titled A Federal Meltdown. And that one gets disturbing, involving the Justice Department and some other things. So tell us the federal meltdown scenario that the committee identifies in its final report.
0: Yeah, this is also very bad for Trump, even though his plot was scuttled because he wanted to abuse power at the Justice Department to try to overrule a few states where Biden had won. So, you know, Watergate was dirty tricks largely outside the building, if you will. You know, dirty tricks that occurred over here and then trying to press DOJ and CIA abuse that power to cover it up to stop the investigation. This in in what he wanted to do was far more direct, and so many people would say, in that sense, worse than Watergate, because he went Trump directly to DOJ and said, "I need you to lie about the results to create a pretense of investigating fraud and demand one or more states, including Georgia, meet and over you know meet to potentially overthrow uh, Biden's win in the state." Um, now Trump's thinking again. This goes to people who say, "Oh, he's." People have all these caricatures of him. He's very shrewd in this sense, maybe only in the criminal plotting sense. But he had an understanding that what he wanted to get out of the Republican states wasn't happening. It was a bridge too far to get even super partisan Republicans in relatively conservative areas to overthrow their, overthrow their own voters. So he needed more. And he thought if he could get the DOJ involved, it would create enough of a pretense where those... State Republicans who weren't acting would be able to say, well, if the DOJ says there's fraud, then yes, we should have this legislature meeting. And then from there, he would go forward. We're watching right now Republican chaos on the House floor um, where once you get the problem going, once you get everybody in there, the whole situation looks different. I'm not sure that six months ago anyone could have predicted exactly this. They would have said, well, sooner or later McCarthy will hold as he did the last hundred years, like speakers usually do. Trump has a feel for those things. And so that was the goal. That was a federal meltdown. The DOJ pushed back hard, but he found this guy, Jeff Clark, who's now under investigation to try to muscle up and potentially become acting AG. There was some, you some know, confusion about whether he momentarily was going to be that. The DOJ's Republican Trump appointees, these are people who are with his conservative ideology or whatever you want to call it, they threatened to resign in masse, Saturday Night Massacre style, Trump backed down. Again, that's one of the other plots that's bad for his criminal intent because it shows how many different ways he tried to engineer this outcome, which is why it's not enough in the court to say, oh, of course Trump wanted bad things to happen on the 6th. You don't like Trump. That's not called evidence. <laughs> that's opinion. Mm-hmm. But when you look at all the different ways that all, what do all these plots have in common? They all had the illicit, unlawful goal of overturning the election. And when he ran out of, certain ones, he landed on literally and physically sabotaging the vote on the 6th. So, you know, again, to, to distill it all for voter, voters and listeners here, as we're on this anniversary day, I think the case that he had a direct link to the militias to, to proactively stage an insurrection is a tough case to make on the available evidence. I wouldn't call that a strong case. I think the case that he had the criminal intent to obstruct and delay the proceeding, which they did. Uh, is a very strong case. I would call it an overwhelming case. Uh, and so again, if people say, okay, Ari, Brian, what's the point? Well, here we are two years out. What's going on at Merrick Garland's Justice Department if that case against the, the co-conspirators and or the former president is not currently being made at all?
1: But here's the question that I keep having in my mind, and I'm not sure that it's been answered well enough. Um, for you as a lawyer, if they're gonna make a criminal case against Donald Trump along the lines that you've been discussing, do they have to prove that he genuinely believed that he lost the election and was trying to overturn it anyway? Because you get some of the witnesses to the January sixth committee who say no, despite all the cooler heads within his administration, William Barr and many others, who told him, no, there was no election fraud at the level that would overturn the election, that he believed it anyway, and that would make it harder to prove criminal intent. What's your lawyer's take on that?
0: No, they do not need to prove his mindset regarding whether he really thought he lost or not. They do need to prove his corrupt or illicit intent. So, let's use a different example. If you go into the bank and you really, really, really believe the money in there is yours, in, this, in the safe, and you try to, to physically go in and take a million dollars out of the safe that's not yours, Even if you pass a lie detector test or whatever that you really believed it was yours, that you had that delusion. Mm -hmm. That ain't going to clear you of taking the money that wasn't yours. Mm. Now, I can give you a different example. If you were at work and somebody comes in and Brian says, Brian, can you hold this package for me because I have to run out and someone's coming to pick it up? And you say, sure, you're a nice colleague. And it turns out the package is full of heroin and other contraband. And you had no other corrupt or illicit intent, then legally it would be hard to hit you for that because you didn't have either the corrupt intent or the knowledge of what you were holding, right? So if you think of this as a a spectrum, the law, to be fair, cares about the mindset because in that second example, it would obviously be unfair and very easy to frame people, right, if you did that. So when I say corrupt intent, it doesn't mean legally um, that he had a full uh, hold on every concept. I mean, plenty of people commit crimes because they, in their mind, think they're doing something that they think is, for example, right, or avenging something or whatever, or they're getting what they want back, or you can have a dispute in your neighborhood and say, you took that, I'm taking this. Okay, so in your mind, you're taking back what you're owed. That ain't good enough if you had the corrupt intent to still, for example, break into someone's home, or in this case, the corrupt intent to submit elector fraud that you knew was false according to the rules as they were which is why it was a secret and why you did it fraudulently or sabotage the certification. Now then you're saying there's a second layer. Oh, well, in his mind, sabotage the certification could be justified if he thinks he's the rightful winner. That could be true in his mind and doesn't make the prosecution more difficult. So I say that because these things are a little tricky. I always tell people like, you know, what's the difference between leaving your oven on and burning down the whole building, which is a tragedy and going to, to turn your oven on to burn down a building, that's arson, right? The physicalities are the exact same. Uh, it was what is in your mind, and that's why cases go to that. So, yes, I think there's been some attention, but probably too much, um, to whether he believed that. And then the last thing I'll say on this long answer, Brian, is committee does a good job in the report of showing that he told the aides, oh, well, we lost, we just have to find a way to spin it. Um, he made directives about troop movements and other real governing activities with the expectation that he was leaving on the 20th, that he evinced a knowledge um, that he was going and probably had lost. Um, but again, I don't think that's required to prove a case.
1: Ari Melber is chief legal correspondent for MSNBC and hosts The Beat on that station, 6 p.m. Eastern time on weeknights. Ari, thanks a lot. We really appreciate the time today. Thank you, Brian.